We believe at Lakeland that being a global Christian is very important, that, that having a cross-cultural experience um, can be um, an overseas experience. It could be a, an experience in the inner city. One thing I saw a lot when I was in Haiti was um, just how hopeful the people were and how there was just a richness in the way they sang their songs and played. And it's hard to find that richness here in America. It was interesting the tension I felt in my soul about wanting to go and do when I need an activity, but to really just sit and be with the kids was, uh, was a great God moment for me. Any kind of culture that is different than your own helps broaden your experience, helps you see God in a different light, helps you allow you to see the kingdom and the goal of bringing people toward the kingdom as um, something personal to you. I can't wait to go back. Like, that's one thing I look forward to doing. My name is Jamie Davis, and this is my story. In November of 2009, I met a woman named Marsha who worked for the Global Orphan Project. She talked of the work that Global was doing to care for orphaned and abandoned children in Haiti, and I casually thought to myself that maybe one day I'd go to a country such as Haiti. Two months later, on January 12, 2010, a catastrophic earthquake rocked this small, impoverished island, affecting over 3 million people and leaving an estimated 150,000 dead. I'd never been to a developing country, and had honestly never had a desire to go. But as I listened to the news reports of the devastation, I had this compelling need to move, to go to Haiti. It was beyond me, outside of me. I cannot explain it, and I could not resist it. I called Marcia the next day, and three weeks later, I was boarding a plane to Port-au-Prince, Haiti. I had no idea what to expect, what I would see, where I would stay, what I would eat. Friends and family told me I was crazy, and it seemed crazy and totally out of character for me, and yet it felt like one of the most right decisions I'd ever made. Before this trip to Haiti, I felt like I had a fairly solid relationship with Jesus. I'd been on staff at Lakeland for almost 10 years. I'd led ministries in small groups. I'd mentored others in their walk with Jesus. I worshiped, I served, and I loved God. But the Jesus I met in Haiti was radically different than the one I knew in my safe suburban community. And this Jesus came to me in the form of a little girl named Taina. Taina crawled into my lap and into my heart on day two of that first trip. I didn't know Taina's story or all that she had lost in the earthquake. She didn't speak a word to me, but those deep, dark eyes told a story of pain beyond my imagination. The bond between us can only be described as sacred and God-ordained. I held this sweet girl in my arms for the next three days, and in a way, she held me. I honestly believe that this simple act healed something in both our souls. Being in Haiti was uncomfortable, but it was nothing compared to coming back. Haiti ruined me. It ruined me for the average, for what I thought was normal. It was as if God had taken the neat, tidy snow globe of my life and had shaken it violently. 
I was now a swirling mess with no idea where or when the pieces might land. I tried to tell my story when I returned, but words failed me. There were no words to accurately describe this paradox of joy in the midst of pain, of hope in the midst of devastation, of worshiping God alongside people who had lost everything and everyone, and the only response they had was to fall on their knees and praise their God. I was a wreck. I was angry with everyone, myself and God included. I asked God, why did you have me go? What am I supposed to do now? And the only thing I heard from God was go back and take someone with you. So later that fall, I boarded another plane with six of my friends and headed back to Haiti. When we arrived at the children's village that evening, it was dark, but we could hear the children singing. As we stepped off the bus and into the darkness, children swarmed all around us. I couldn't see the face of... I'm sorry... I wasn't off the bus for more than maybe a minute when I felt a small hand slide into mine. I couldn't see the face of this small child at first, but as we walked into a more lighted area, I looked down into Taina's eyes, and she looked up into mine. Now, I need you to understand the sacredness of this moment. There were over 200 children in this village at this time, and they had had teams of Americans visiting every week for the past seven months. But this little girl who I made an unexplainable connection with months earlier, found my hand, in the dark no less, within a minute of my arrival. I have heard it said often that we are being the hands and feet of Jesus when we go and serve the least of these, and I do believe that to be true. But I also believe that these children at the end of the line are the hands and feet of Jesus to us as well. The people I've met in Haiti may have economic poverty, but they are spiritually wealthy. My poverty lies in my soul. When Taina slipped her hand into mine, it was as if Jesus was saying to me, I've been waiting for you. I have not forgotten. You are loved. These pilgrimages to Haiti stretch me, grow me, break me, and heal me. They remind me that there is a whole other world outside my safe suburban bubble, and they call me to participate in what Jesus is doing there as well as here. I've been leading trips ever since. Every time I go, I learn something new about who I am, who my Jesus is, and what it looks like to participate in the kingdom of God. Each trip is different, and some are more painful than others. On a trip in 2013, I stepped off the bus and I waited. No little hand came to lead me to our favorite spot on a concrete slab in the shade. My lap and my heart were empty that trip. Taina had family that were now in a position to care for her, and she had returned home. Joy and pain, fear and trust, all rolled into one swirling mess. Joy, because she belonged with her family, not in an orphanage. Pain for the loss of my friend. Fear, did she have food and a safe place to sleep? Did she have someone holding her hand? And trust. Taina belongs to God, and she is his. Frederick Buchner writes that the place that God calls us to is the place where our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And I have found this to be true. There are a few times where I feel more alive, more fully human, more connected with the kingdom of God than when I am sitting in the dirt on a hot afternoon, holding the hand of a child and telling them in my broken creole, You have not been forgotten. 
you matter, and Jesus loves you. And through this child, Jesus whispers the same back to me. My name is Jamie Davis, and this is my story. Jamie's story is exactly the reason why the third year of Fearless is about go. Um, Everything she said about how it changes us and how God uses a pilgrimage is why we're so strongly commending everyone this year. Find somewhere to go and discover God in a new way. So, uh, Jamie, this morning, if anyone's feeling moved that that Haiti might be the place, they actually want to go where you went. Um, what would, might be their next step? Yes, we, um, I will be leading a trip in August. The dates are August 3rd through August 8th. Um, there is a group on Lakeland Connect called Haiti Pilgrimage 2016, and you can join that group and get more information. Um, there will also be an informational meeting after second service on March 20th. Two weeks. Two weeks, yes. And I'm really excited about this one because uh, Fearless is offering scholarships to our youth to go to Haiti. And uh, all three of my girls have done missions. My two youngest uh, first went to Haiti when they were 13 and 19. And my husband and I will tell you that it is one of the best financial investments we have made in who our girls have become now. So um, if you are interested in that, if your youth is interested in that, get in touch with me either through the Lakeland Connect group or the informational meeting on the 20th. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you. God bless you. Well, would you stand with me? We'll continue worship. You know, uh, around here, our uh, theology and thinking about announcements and stories is all a part of worship. The singing part's not just the only worship part. It's it's all worship. And uh, all during Lent, I've been uh, reading, uh, it's been coming to me on my phone every day, the same psalm to start the daily psalms, and Psalm 96 is what comes up. And it says near the end, it says, And then, with all the trees of the wood, shout for joy at the presence of the Lord, for he comes. And I think about the woods shouting for joy. And uh, I like the woods. I like camping. I like hiking. And yesterday, Lori and I put some uh, seeds in the ground and tilled up the garden. And it's always a special moment to begin to have to watch for the seeds and to watch the seasons change. Think about the woods, watch the animals all trying to, you know, do their spring thing. <laughs> and I just begin to realize that all the earth is praising God. Why not us? Why not us this morning, right now, give back to the Creator what was, ne- what was never ours in the first place, the gift of life. Fearless Journey is now two years old, and through your generosity and sacrifice, Our God has accomplished a great deal. All of the funds requested for the Eastland House have been raised by Fearless and turned over for the construction of that house in the inner city to support the ministry of the Hope Center. For the last two years, Jack and Hannah Liu have been reaching out with the gospel of Jesus to their neighbors in China, and Fearless has supported that ministry. In Anapa, Mexico, over 25 families received beans and rice and other grocery needs for one year, supported by Fearless. 
Over the last two years, Liberia, Africa has suffered under the Ebola epidemic. But through Fearless, we were able to give needed medical supplies and relief during that crisis. Cordeo, a youth center in Lee Summit, reaching out to at-risk kids, moved from a mom-and-pop out-of-the-house operation to its own facility on Shipman Road. Veronica's voice purchased a house in Kansas City, Kansas. This house will serve as a rehabilitation center where women may live rent-free while they leave the sex trade, recover from addiction, receive counseling for their trauma, and job training for their new future. Fearless not only repaired, but updated our sanctuary projection system into the screen you see now. After 10 years of extension ladders and unsafe climbs up the lighting truss, Fearless purchased a hydraulic lift. During the first year of the campaign, Fearless built a new youth room, now one of the best spaces in the building. The last original air conditioner was replaced above Kid Zone. God for all these accomplishments, not to us, but to his name be the glory. And now we look forward to the last year. Well, we come to uh, the part where we look at God's word. And uh, I want to encourage you, and it may not seem like it, because we're going to look at what I consider one of the hardest, hardest passages in the Bible to digest. So let me give it to you right now. Then someone came to him and said, came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what, must, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Good question. And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. In other words, keep the law. That means the Ten Commandments as well as all the rest of the law. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? That's an interesting question. Which commandments should I keep? Like he's going to get to pick and choose. Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the Ten Commandments plus the law of Moses that says, you know, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. 20, young man said to him, I've kept all these. What do I still lack? 21, and Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the young man heard these words, he went away grieving for he had many possessions. You see why I think it's one of the hardest passages in the world? So today, this celebration we're talking about, this this 24-month celebration of Fearless, our 36-month financial challenge, 
We want to celebrate what God's doing in our midst. And we want to encourage and thank everyone for all the good work they're doing. But with a passage like this today, you may be expecting like right now, this is going to be the heavy moment, right? The heavy-handed moment. Because if we were a heavy-handed church, you take a passage like this, go and sell. If you wish to be perfect, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. A passage like that, this would be a perfect opportunity to guilt everybody into giving, wouldn't it? I mean, if we were heavy-handed, it'd be like, hey, look, everybody, you've got to sell everything you have, you know, cut it down to the bone and give it away. If you're not, you're not perfect. Sorry. It's not going to work out for you. But I have to tell you, we, we keep every now and then trying to be a heavy-handed church, and we're just not very good at it. I, I don't know what the deal is. We're just not very good at being heavy-handed around here and that sort of thing. But mostly, I think the reason why we're not very good at being heavy-handed about it is because you guys are such excellent givers. Do you know nationally you guys give, <laughs> like last year, you guys gave double the average church. Just normal giving, you guys gave double. It's really hard to be heavy-handed when you guys do such a great job. I'm just saying, you know, you guys are excellent at this sort of thing. We've given over three quarters of a million dollars over the last 24 months, above and beyond our general giving, above and beyond the general budget. Three quarters of a million dollars, just us. That's crazy talk. 12 more months to go. I I can't thank you guys enough. It's incredible work you're doing. You fed the hungry. You build houses for ex-prostitutes to get out of the trade. You remodel a a critical house in the inner, inner city. You fund new train, uh, you trained and funded new leaders in the persecuted church in China. Totally illegal, by the way. And you've kept us in this wonderful building. So thank you. Well done. I hope and pray you feel the pleasure of the Lord in all of this, that you say, like, it's not me, it's God. So there's no reason to heavy hand these words like Jesus. If you want to be perfect, then you better sell everything you have and give it away to the poor. And then you'll have eternal life. Yet, yet, neither should we discount and write off and pat ourselves on the back and think, well, what Jesus is saying to the rich man, that's just a special circumstance. That's only for one guy a couple of thousand years ago who was rich and so that really doesn't apply to us today. Us today. That's just one special circumstance. That's what he was supposed to do, not all of us. And you can think that, except that if you have your Bible in front of you and you kept reading like verse 23 right after it, you'd see what Peter says immediately after. Because Peter's like, hey, look, Jesus, me and the other guys, we've all left everything to come follow you. So, so Peter and the rest of the disciples, they thought it was applied to them. It wasn't just like, yeah, you young, wealthy dude. Sell your stuff and come join the rest of it. They're like, we're supposed to do that too. How are we going to do that? So, okay, so there's a wealthy guy and then there's Peter and the rest of the disciples. They all thought it was applied to them, you know? And then we think like, yeah, but maybe that still doesn't apply to us. Except for the fact that for the next 250 years, you see this steady stream of Christians all around the Mediterranean, as far as the gospel is going, and they are selling their possessions and moving out into the desert to, to take on a life of prayer and personal piety. They're, they become the monks. One man in particular led the charge around 250 AD, Anthony, called Anthony the Great. He's 18 years old. He's on his way to church, and he's thinking, what, much, what more must I do in order to be a devout Christian? 
He gets to church. He hears the same exact passage you just heard. Matthew 19, 21. If you wish to be perfect, sell your goods and all this. He walks out of church as an 18-year-old. His parents had died, left him a ton of money. He had a little sister. Sells everything, sets up a trust fund for his sister. Sells everything and moves out into the desert to seek perfection. Okay, so there's this one guy that it applies to. There's Peter and the disciples that it applies to. And there's this guy named Anthony and a bunch of guys like him. Oh, yeah, and then the thousands and thousands of monks that followed Anthony into the life of being a monk or a hermit over 1,800 years. So you got you know thousands and thousands of these guys. But what does this have to do with us today? So I thought, well, I'm going to go read some Bible experts on this. I'm going to go read, read some Bible scholars, some exegetes, and see what they say. Because I don't really know what this word perfect means. I got an idea what it means. Does it mean moral perfection? So I go read a bunch of Bible scholars here the last few weeks. And you know what all the expert Bible, modern-day Bible scholars said about this passage? They said that they thought Jesus meant by perfection. That if you want to be perfect, you should go sell everything you have, give it all away to the poor, store up treasure in heaven, and come follow Jesus. That's what Jesus meant. Okay, so other than one wealthy man, Peter and the disciples, a few thousand monks over a couple thousand years, and a bunch of Bible experts, what does this have to do with us? How can we apply these words to us? This doesn't apply to us, right? Well, it does apply to us, and I'll tell you why. Because our stuff keeps us from perfection. Our possessions keep us from perfection. What do we mean by perfection? Moral perfection, like squeaky clean, you know? Don't dance, don't drink, don't go with girls who chew and all that stuff. Yeah. It means that. Inner peace? Devotion to Jesus? Good. Certainly true. Love your neighbor as yourself? Ah, now we're getting to the original intent of what Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler about. This was the rub for the rich young ruler. Who's my neighbor and do I really have to love them? Meaning part with my possessions and give it to the poor and this sort of thing. That's hitting the nail on the head. That's what Jesus was driving at with the rich young ruler. Allow me to, the, to, to, un, to offer this to you as a definition of perfection. Definition of perfection, I got two of them here for you. And you may want to pencil this in on like this margin of your program there or whatever. One definition of perfection, first one is freedom. Definition of perfection is the word freedom. By freedom, I mean free from want. Free from the insatiable desires of the next thing, the gadget. Freedom from the desire to hit one click, buy with one click. Freedom from the bigger and the better. Freedom from the Corolla to the Camry, from the BMW to the Bentley, from the 6S to the 7, whenever it comes out. Freedom. You see, everyone, signing the check, signing that check is just like when every monk these days and for the last 1,800 years has gone up to an altar, because if you're a monk, you do this, a piece of paper is on the altar and you sign it that says, I renounce all of my worldly possessions. I own nothing. I know, I hang out with some monks up at Conception Abbey and some of you do too. 
All of them have done that. They own nothing. Two robes. That's all they get. When you and I sign checks to give money away, we become free. Freedom comes. It is a form and part of the definition of perfection. When we act generously, we re-describe ourselves, we re-identify ourselves, we gain a different identity. We become free. When we act generously, we re-describe ourselves as followers of Jesus. I remember the very first time Lori and I really did this seriously back in 2004 to get us into this place where you're sitting right now. And, and a whole bunch of us did this. And we had been struggling over, like, how much should we give? And I remember one night, it was close to midnight, and Lori was working. And I was down there in the basement with a flip chart, which is always a really nice thing to do with your wife at about midnight when she's working, is drag out a flip chart and say, I think we need to talk about how much money we're going to give to this whole financial thing to do the church building. And I just said, I didn't think it was enough. And so we doubled it that night. It wasn't a crazy thing like, well, we have no idea how we're going to give this amount of money. We had a plan, but it meant we were going to have to change how we did our lifestyle. We took a big, huge leap of faith and signed that pledge card and turned it into a basket, just like what we have here this morning, into a bowl. I felt like when I did that, that I became a Christian all over. I had already left the marketplace and become a pastor. I'd gone off and spent thousands and thousands of dollars on getting a master's degree. And I'd started a church when all the rest of my friends from seminary were out making nice you know, paychecks and living in nice offices. And I'm still like in my basement. But when I did that pledge card, when Lauren and I did that pledge card, I felt like now, now I'm getting serious about my faith. And I became free. My trust in God skyrocketed. I got a whole new level of faith. What about you these days? How's your generosity making you feel these days? Is it making you feel sad, resentful, guilty? Are you going away sad? Or is your charitable giving, your generosity, making you feel free? Like you have freedom. Is it making you feel victorious? Generous, charitable, and content, like my stuff doesn't own me. I don't need it. Which one? Well, here's the other definition then of perfection in addition to freedom. The second one is love, that good old tired word love. As in love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Herein is the fulfillment of the entirety of the Old Testament law. For Jesus. Love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything you have. The entirety of the law is perfected in the gift of love. And here's how it works. This definition of perfection as love keeps us from moral legalism. Because the great pit within Christianity is the pit of moral legalism. That hamster wheel that you get on that says, I'm not good enough, so I need to do more in order to justify myself before a, a pure and almighty God. That's the complete opposite of grace and what this cross represents. Love is what frees us from that idea of moral perfectionism. When we attempt to chase morality 
instead of grace and instead of love. We end up people who are no longer able to love your neighbor as yourself. Anybody who stands up here like me and says, hey, a bunch of us are giving a lot of money away to feed the poor and to do things in Haiti and so forth. To us, that just sounds like, oh, brother. This is exactly what happened to Frederick Nietzsche over 100 years ago. Frederick Nietzsche, philosopher, right? His father and his grandfather were both German Lutheran ministers. So Nietzsche, as a young man, goes off to seminary, makes it through one semester and, and trash cans the entire faith. He says, you know what the problem with Christianity is, is, for that matter, all world religions? He says it makes everybody resentful and depressed, and it's like a huge weight upon them. He called it nihilism. Religion is a, is a bummer, is what he said. You see, what Nietzsche never saw in his version of Christianity, I guess, is he never saw freedom and love. He never understood it. He only saw moralism and trying to check all the boxes off. He was on the hamster wheel, and he said, forget this. If, if we instead then, everyone think of everything in our life as a gift, if we think of, of, of the world, what if the world were a gift from God? What if God gave you this one life to live and it's a gift and you're free and you're free to love and it, it doesn't possess you and you don't possess it. It's all just a gift. What if the world was a gift? What if your life was a gift? What if all the stuff in your house is sitting in your driveway and stuck out in your yard? What if it was all a gift? What if God gave you this one life and it was a gift? What if all your hardships and your trials and your mistakes and the disasters in your life, what if they were also a gift? What if, what if all the goodness in life, all the good, the bad, and the ugly, what if it were all a gift? Your kids, your paycheck, your vacation, your friends, what if everything in life is considered a gift? You become free and free to love. You are no longer possessed. Look at it this way. This is a knife. And it's not just a knife. I mean, it's a knife, you know? And it's my father's old camping knife from back in the 1940s. And one day, he gave it to me as a gift. And it says on the sheath, it says, John Wilburn, Troop 88, because he was scoutmaster as a young man. It's not much to look at these days. It's all rusted and it's dull. I don't ever really remember it being sharp. It's probably because I tried to sharpen it as a kid. The leather's rotting, falling apart. And you think like, you know, that's just good for the trash. That's a worthless knife. You can get a good, cool knife these days. All kinds of awesome knives. They got flashlights built into them and stuff. Why don't you go get yourself one of those? I'll tell you why. Because this is a gift. It's a gift from my father to me. And that makes it priceless. It changed everything. You see, this knife is a relationship, not a knife. This 
has been changed into something that binds my father and I together, even though he's been long gone. This has changed into something different. And when you and I give, when you and I write checks, when you and I attach ourselves to people in Haiti, in China, in Liberia, in the inner city, and wherever else we go, it's no longer just money. It's now a relationship. It's no longer just a dollar. It's no longer just a check. It's no longer just a, 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 an airplane ticket stub. It's no longer just a stamp in your passport. It now is a relationship between you, somebody else on the planet, and God Almighty. And it will change you forever. Could you hear Jamie Davis struggling to even try and just describe to you how she's changed in her heart because of Haiti? You see, perfection, when it's just reduced down to morality as opposed to a relationship of freedom and love, that's what the young man understood Jesus to mean by perfection. He thought that when Jesus told him to go sell all his possessions, he thought, well, I'll lose my identity. I won't be me anymore. But what Jesus was really telling him is that when you go and love your neighbor and you give away all this stuff, you now become a different person. Now you can come follow me. You'll be like me. You'll be like Jesus. It's our relationship with others and with God that makes us priceless, everyone. Not our stuff. Not this church. It's your relationship with God and other people that makes you priceless. You are a gift. Don't hoard it. Give yourself away. Not in some sort of bad psychological way. I mean give yourself away. Be the gift you are. Become priceless. Love God. Love others. And you'll be perfect. And the conduit for it is your stuff. So now we come to the Lord's table. And if uh, the servers would come forward, and Garrett as well. We come to the Lord's table. And you know, the Lord's table is also a symbol of relationship. Because it's really just bread and a juice. It's just stuff like this knife. Bread and juice. It's just stuff. It's just bread and juice. But because of the relationship with God, it suddenly becomes something very different. It becomes something very different. It could just be a religious ceremony, just a dry, boring religious ceremony. But because of the relationship with God and because we do it together, it redefines us into a different people. Knives become symbols of relationship. Bread and juice become symbols of relationship. The mundane elements become priceless because of the relationship, and they're transformed. Yay, they're transfigured. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Those are all relational words. The cross is a gift, and Jesus had to go through it 
for you and me. Why? Because the Father loves us. It's just simple wood. But it makes us into a relationship with God. It's just juice and bread. But it makes us into a relationship with God. It's just a knife. But it's priceless. Would you stand with me, please? And let us pray together, not recite. Let us pray together the words that Jesus gave us and taught us how to pray. Everyone, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil for the kingdom power and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And therefore, we reclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. No hallelujah during Lent. Not allowed to say praise the Lord during Lent because something's terribly wrong. We'll fix that next week. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. With the Celtic blessing in anticipation of Easter. And we do this all together. And why do we cross ourselves? Because we belong to that cross right there. If you don't belong to that, then don't do it. If you do, do it with gusto. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.